Good morning. Uh, I am Paul Keim. I teach in Bible religion and foreign languages, and I'm also co-director of the Maple Scholars Program. And the convo for this morning is an introduction to Maple Scholars. Ah, and right there at the bottom you see the um, URL for the Maple Scholars page, and I'm going to invite you to go there and uh, uh, check out what we have on the page. And so we'll just kind of walk through. I have some uh, uh, students here to uh, Maple Scholars who will uh, also talk about their experience. But let's walk through it first. Goshen College, of course, small liberal arts college. And usually we pride ourselves on uh, good teaching and um, engagement with students in, in a variety of ways in the classroom and so forth, uh, as opposed to a larger research institution. But we also do research at this place. And that is uh, a longstanding tradition here. Maple Scholars really is an extension of years of doing research, of students involved in research projects of professors. Uh, but when it started uh, about 15 years ago, it formalized and focused uh, the student-faculty research that happened, and we uh, had a grant that helped us to establish this practice. And there are scenes here of various Maple Scholars um, encounters and projects. It started with a Pew Grant in the Natural Sciences and working with a research university, uh, smaller liberal arts colleges had a chance to do research projects that were funded uh, in association with larger uh, grant funding and Goshen thrived with that program. Once that program was over, we continued with Maple Scholars and uh, it was under the leadership of Carl Helrich, now retired uh, physics professor, that the invitation was extended beyond the natural sciences to include all departments, all disciplines. And so it was in conversation with Carl that many of us in the humanities uh, were invited and um, began to do projects that fit into the contours of the Maple Scholars. So we now refer not just to research because there are projects that don't really fit the classical model of research projects, certainly not in the natural science mode, but we do research creativity as uh, kind of the, the, the motto of what we do. So that embraces everything that the various disciplines and departments uh, engage in with faculty and students on this campus. So some examples here of, uh, of what we do, basically. Students work with a professor on a, on a project that is uh, laid out by the professor for which students can express interest and apply. And it happens in various places uh, across the uh, campus and at Mary Lee. So it crosses disciplinary boundaries in many respects. Um, and that's built into the program, as we'll see. We develop community, both in terms of the living situation of the scholars on campus and the interaction that happens in our weekly meetings together as we try to establish some kind of common language to share with each other the work that we do, the methodologies we use, 
the ways we get at underlying truths and uh, share those with our peers. It's this weekly colloquium on Friday mornings where we bring our work together. And um, there will be some chances that the students will talk about that experience as well. And there is a stipend that goes along with this for students, uh, room and uh, board for the summer. And so it's a pretty good uh, deal in that respect. Some examples of projects in the past. We've had uh, Costa Rican women's stories of collective action. We've had cholesterol microstructures in membranes. We've had special problems in painting. We've had Christian Muslim conflict in Ethiopia. We've had the effects of deer herbivory on tall grass prairie forbs. And the great thing about that was that by week three, all of us knew what herbivory and forbs were, something we didn't know at the beginning. And uh, we peppered our conversation with herbivory and forbs. <laughs> you could too. <clears throat> so here is a, uh, not an exhaustive list, but a list of some of the projects that uh, took place last summer. So you can see here, uh, Musician Maker with uh, John Bushert, and there's a description here of the, 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 the things that they were trying to accomplish. So developing a computer music system in this case that allows unskilled players the fun of creating improvisational expressive music. Unskilled players, I mean, how many of us are there out there? Uh, and uh, so now, yes, exactly, I see those hands. And, and now uh, through this project, John is gonna demonstrate this a little later on. Uh, fair allocation, David Hausman has been working uh, over many of the summers with fair allocation uh, using game theory uh, in ways that are very compelling and interesting. Uh, informatics, Kent Palmer has started informatics sessions uh, that deal specifically with course development within informatics that he's been working on uh, intensively the last couple of years, but also a way in which technology is beginning to influence quite directly classroom experience across the curriculum. So we're looking forward to that again this summer. Membrane biophysics, a lot of membrane biophysics going on in the Maple Scholars uh, in various kinds of projects. Here again, uh, I was like a babe in the woods when it came to the terminology, the methodology, what was going on at all. And so I don't know how many uh, Friday presentations I sat through before I had any idea what was going on. They put little pictures up, uh, they had little apparatuses, and of course, you know, we don't have the apparatuses in the humanities. Uh, they're lucky in the natural sciences. Uh, their first project is to build a little apparatus and they collect data. And then they bring the data and they interpret the data. And they get to wear these little lab coats and so forth. We have none of that. You know, they're working with their apparatus. What do we do? Uh, well, we read some books and articles last week and uh, sat around and talked about it for a while. I mean, that's, uh, that's the humanities. So we felt like second class citizens for a long time. Um, but it's extremely interesting and important work that has application uh, in all kinds of medical technology uh, research and so forth. Uh, alcohol and bees, Andy Ammons has been doing this very interesting uh, work with uh, bees, um, with some hives located right here on campus and uh, down in Mary Lee, and uh, seeing the effects of uh, alcohol uh, um, um, uh, absorption and so forth. Um, 
Jan Bender-Shetler was working on the Myra Cultural Heritage Digital Library. We have a number of projects that try to organize um, with students and professors some of the research materials we have here on campus in our various archival holdings uh, in departments or um, institution-wide that need to be made available usually in electronic format so that uh, scholars from here or elsewhere can make use of uh, those materials. That's gonna be happening again this coming summer with uh, recordings that um, former music professor Mary Oyer made uh, years ago. Uh, also uh, from last summer, painting explorations in surface and scale, John Blosser. Um, Membrane transport, again, James Miller. Julia is going to talk about that this morning. Muslim Mennonite Encounters, uh, a project Ben Baumgartner worked on with me. Uh, overweight Children, and a program that um, both measured and uh, dealt with um, solutions to uh, this problem. X-ray studies in calcite growth, another one of those areas where we had to learn terminology uh, in order to receive the reports but very interesting work that takes advantage of our Turner, uh, uh, Turner um, Research Lab that is a unique uh, um, um, asset for us. And then um, empowering, uh, which had to do with um, anti-bullying measures in local schools uh, under Steve Thomas, also very, uh, very interesting. So some of the practical stuff, as we say, student receives a stipend, uh, room and board, lives in community on campus with other Maple Scholars, uh, each project receives some additional money for equipment and um, books. Well, what kinds of things? The faculty arranges the daily schedule with the student. It's, uh, in, in many cases, kind of like a, an eight to five job, but with a flexible schedule. There's a colloquium each Friday morning in which we take turns presenting our work. And um, that uh, usually takes a while for us to get to a point where we can listen to each other, talk to each other, understand where the work has progressed uh, over the prior weeks. And then uh, it moves into the final day. We have poster sessions, uh, formal banquet and uh, program uh, with a speaker uh, invited from outside. And this helps to kind of send us off uh, at the end of July. Well. We have uh, testimonials from two students here. I first want to just tell one story uh, about the nature of the interdisciplinary work that we do. For many years, I think it was very difficult for those in the natural sciences and those in the humanities to understand each other's work, to appreciate each other's work. Uh, in one of our student symposiums uh, years ago, I was sitting in a session in which two of Carl Helrich's students were talking about membrane transport and ion channels. And to do so, they had drawn a picture, they had made a representation of what they understood to be happening uh, in that ion channel. My first reaction was, wait a minute, they're just making this up. Nobody's ever seen that ion channel. I know that. But finally, uh, it, it dawned on me, it hit me. They are taking the data that they collect through their studies and using their imaginations to test what is going on down through that, that, that channel. Still happens with our membrane uh, channel studies. And all of a sudden I realized how close what they were doing was in affinity to what, the kinds of things we do in the humanities. 
We try to imagine truths and test those truths all the time. We use modeling and imaging in ways that push beyond what we can actually prove and establish hypotheses and models that we can test, that we can talk about. And so that has become one of the areas in which interdisciplinary conversation has happened. How do we across the disciplines use imaging and modeling in our uh, various methodologies? And what do those things share deeply in common? Well, uh, I put up there at the top again the, um, the URL for the Maple Scholars page. That's where the proposals for the current year are located. Uh, along with uh, examples of past years. And feel free to look through there. We've extended the deadline for applications out to the 10th of February. And so if you feel you have interest, uh, please uh, consider applying, talking to the professor uh, of uh, a given project and, um, and uh, see if this might be something that uh, would suit you. Well, we're going to have uh, first Julia Stolzfus and then John Miller come and talk about their projects from last summer uh, as another way to whet your appetites for what's possible in this program. Good morning, my name is Julia Stoltzfus and I am in my final year here at Goshen College and anticipates to, to graduate with a degree in general biology come May. This past summer, I had the very fortunate opportunity to work under the supervision and guidance of Dr. James Miller. My project was focused on studying the effects of antioxidants, specifically vitamin E and vitamin C, on the osmotic fragility of red blood cells in Holstein dairy cows during periods of intense heat. The next few slides are just some background information to introduce all of you to some important properties of cellular membranes. Simply stated, osmosis is the movement of water through a selectively permeable membrane, like one that is found surrounding a red blood cell. Movement occurs from a region of low solute or particle concentration into a region of higher solute concentration, aiming to make the two concentrations of the solutions the same. Osmosis is depicted here in this image, where the solute particles are represented as green and the water molecules are represented as gray. Water is moving into the right side of the screen in an effort to equalize the concentrations of the two solutions. Hemolysis literally means the breakdown of red blood cells. It comes from the Greek root hemo, meaning blood, and lysis, meaning to split. Red blood cells normally live in the human body for about 110 days, and after that, they naturally break down and are filtered from the circulation. Osmosis is the chemical process that causes hemolysis, and why this happens is the inner contents of the red blood cell has a higher concentration of salt than its surrounding fluid. This causes water to rush into the cell in an effort to equalize the two solutions. The cells start to swell and eventually the membrane splits and the contents are poured into the surrounding fluid. This means that the cell membrane is flexible but not essentially elastic, meaning it can and will break, which is a characteristic of membranes that ties nicely into a specific area of interest for me known as osmotic fragility. 
Osmotic fragility is the cell's susceptibility to influences capable of causing disruption to the integrity of the red blood cell's membrane. In layman's term, it's just how much pressure the cell can take before it breaks. For me, the first two weeks of Maple Scholars were spent reading lots and lots and lots of journal articles and studies to find something that interested me within the realm of hemolysis. And there are very, very, very many ways to take the research. But when I was first introduced to osmotic fragility, I was pretty excited. However, I got super excited when I found an article that researched the effects of vitamin E and C on the osmotic fragility of rats that were subjected to low and high periods of heat. Vitamin E and C are antioxidants, and antioxidants are important in the body because they oxidize potentially damaging free radicals floating around in your body's system. This study found that when subjected to heat, the rats treated with vitamins expressed a lower level of red blood cell breakdown compared to the control group. And the rats supplemented with both vitamin E and vitamin C had the highest resistance to lysis when placed under stress, which makes sense because vitamin E and C are complementary to one another, meaning that when used together, vitamin E is utilized in the body more efficiently. I read studies focused on osmotic fragility in pigs, goats, and lots more rats. So I feel like now is an appropriate time to let you all in on a little secret. For those of you who don't already know, I need to tell you that I have a huge crush on dairy cows. Heat stress is one of the most common stressors of dairy cattle during the summer months. It affects the cow's overall livelihood, fertility rate, but most importantly, significantly decreases the amount of milk they produce. So when I couldn't find any research on the osmotic fragility of red blood cells in cows, I thought, well, why not? After compiling methods from several studies I found, I formulated my own experimental procedure, which I will now walk you through with the aid of a few gorgeous pictures taken by a fellow maple scholar, Kristen Martin. Research was conducted on my family's dairy farm. Cows were chosen and group, oops, sorry. Um, cows were chosen and grouped similar to age and stage of lactation. The experimental cows were run through a patch, palpation rail, which is seen in this picture. Um, and this rail just forces the cows to line up side by side at a slight angle so that they're more readily handled and, and contained. Using cow chalk, the cows were identified with a letter that was written on both sides of the rump. Blood was collected from the tail vein in a region known as the tail head, um, which is readily accessible by lifting the tail straight up from the body, which is what my handsome lab assistant, my older brother Jacob, is doing in this picture. It was refreshing to finally be able to boss him around for once. Blood was collected twice a day, once in the morning before or after morning milking, and again in the afternoon before evening milking. On experimental days, the cows were given shots of the appropriate vitamin or vitamins in the morning after the sample of blood was collected. The blood samples were taken inside where my mother so graciously allowed me to process all the blood in the nice air-conditioned kitchen right next to the bread box and coffee maker. Of course, under the condition that I would not destroy her nice white countertops. So the way you test osmotic fragility is subjecting small amounts of blood to solutions containing different ratios of water to salt. 
As a general rule, the high, higher the salt content of the solution, the less the cells will split and the less the amount of cell splitting, the clearer or more transparent the product. And this can be seen in the upper right-hand corner in the contents of the cuvette labeled zero, or 270, I'm sorry, labeled 270. Thus, vice versa, the higher the water content in the solution, more cells will split, spilling their contents into surrounding solution, producing a cloudy, dark product, which can be seen in the second row in the middle in the cuvette labeled zero. The cuvettes were then placed in the spectrophotometer, which is an apparatus that reads the absorbencies of the solutions. So we take these readings from the spectrophotometer, input them into Excel, and it pumps out a graph that looks like this. When these points are plotted with one another, you get a nice sigmoidal curve. The top of the curve indicates that all cells were lysed in those specific osmolarities. The bottom of the curve represents cells in that population that remained unlysed or unsplit. Free-handed, you draw the best fit line trying to hit as many points as possible. Then you find the milliosmolarity of the blood sample at half the distance between zero and 100. So in this example, the milliosmolarity um, of this sample at 50% is roughly 155 milliosmolarity, which is the value that's used in comparison between the blood samples. The next three graphs represent the curve trends commonly found in the three experimental groups. The AM curve will always be represented in red, or in blue, excuse me, the PM curve will always be represented in red. The control group were cows subjected to heat without the supplementation of vitamin E or vitamin C. As you can see, the afternoon curve shifted to the right, indicating that the cells became more sensitive to the water content, implying that the cells became less resistant and more fragile under stress. This graph represents cows supplemented with only vitamin E. The common trend we saw was the curve did not shift, implying that her red blood cells remained unlysed at the same rate even after she was put through intense heat stress. Now this is the most exciting graph of my research. This graph represents cows supplemented with both vitamin E and vitamin C. As you can see, the PM curve actually shifted to the left, implying that the cow's red blood cells became less fragile and more resistant to cell lysis or cell splitting even after she underwent intense heat stress. So I compiled the data from all of the experimental trials and preliminary trials, and this is just a tabular representation of the average change between morning and night I found for each of the experimental groups. And again, as you can see, the three common trends, um, the control group increases, the vitamin E stays the same, and the vitamin E and C decreases. Thus, um, the data supports the original hypothesis that cows injected with antioxidants, vitamin E and C will have a higher resistance to cell lysis and cellular damage. I also looked at the residual effect of vitamin E and C. So 10 days after the last experimental in injection, I took blood from the cows both morning and night. As you can see from the raw data, there's really no rhyme or reason for the values I got, um, indicating that the doses, dosage of vitamins I used in my study did not stay in the cow's system for more than 10 days. 
The final aspect I analyzed in my research was milk production, and this was actually thanks to a wonderful comment made by Paul Meyer Reimer, um, a physics professor here at Goshen College during one of our Friday colloquiums. The pounds of milk were recorded both morning and night for each experimental cow, but no blood was drawn or processed. So this slide just represents the average difference of milk um, production from AM to PM of each experimental group and provides an excellent, excellent visual representation. Um, as you can see, the cows that were injected with vitamin E and C had a net gain in production of milk, and the cows that were not injected with vitamin E or C had a net loss of milk production. Thus, this data suggests that there may be a correlation between supplemental treatment and total yield of pounds in milk. So dairy farming is all about keeping your cows healthy and happy so they continue to produce milk and reproduce offspring. From the research I conducted in the Maple Scholars Program, I can say with confidence that antioxidants prevent cellular damage caused by heat stress. And hopefully one day, supplementation of vitamin E and C will be a standard preventative treatment for cows before and during periods of intense heat and an effort to keep them as healthy as possible for as long as possible. Thank you. <laughs>